difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts in a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Genevieve Kosky. Tosh Robinson. In our last episode, we discussed M. Night Shyamalan's idiosyncratic superhero thriller, Unbreakable. Now, Shyamalan has reunited with Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson for Glass, the conclusion of his East Rail 177 trilogy. Wait, a trilogy, you ask? I thought this was Shyamalan's first film with Willis and Jackson together since the year 2000. Oh, no. No, my friend. Here's the deal. Shyamalan made a hit movie a couple of years ago called Split, about a guy named Kevin Wendell Crumb, a.k.a. The Horde, played by James McAvoy, who suffers from dissociative identity disorder and has 23 separate identities. On top of that, some of those identities affect a physiological change within him, making him powerful and dangerous in addition to being emotionally unstable. And on top of all that, Kevin has a hidden 24th identity called the Beast that's basically like an evil hulked-out zoo animal. At the end of Split, we get a shot of Bruce Willis as David Dunn, a.k.a. the Overseer, which brings him, and by extension, Samuel L. Jackson's Elijah, a.k.a. Mr. Glass, into the same cinematic universe. (laughs) Glass brings all of them together in an asylum. It opens with David trying to free four cheerleaders from the Beast, but both of them are captured by the authorities and thrown into the same institution where David's nemesis, Mr. Glass, has resided since he was caught at the end of Unbreakable. At the institution, Dr. Ellie Staple, played by Sarah Paulson, is working hard to suppress their superpowers. But Mr. Glass is still an evil mastermind, and the Overseer is still a brooding hero, and the Beast is still a demented wild card, and the dynamic between the three proves impossible to contain. Because that is how comic books work. All the action builds to a potential showdown at the gleaming new Osaka building in downtown Philadelphia, where our trio can be expected to fight in a trilogy-ending battle royale. Or maybe M. Night Shyamalan has another trick up his sleeve. We'll have a spoiler-filled discussion about it after the break. The three of you have convinced yourselves you have extraordinary gifts like something out of a comic book. David Dunn, the only person to survive that train wreck all those years ago. What do you do? I'm in security. You think you have superpowers? It's a feeling. Vision. I have to touch them. You believe you are a protector. My name is Patricia. I have no question. There are two dozen identities. I'm Mary Reynolds. Por favor, senora. We almost got you, bro. That live in that body with you. The beast. It's coming any minute now for you guys. But what I am questioning is your belief that you are something more than human. And yet, it is true. My bones break easily. I've had 94 breaks in my life. But you have an extraordinary IQ. This is not a cartoon. This is the real world. No way and yet some of us still don't die with bullets some of us can still bend steel i've been waiting for the world to see that we exist may i meet the beast i hope for your sake that he likes you that sounds like the bad guys teaming up A lot of people are going to die. Don't do this. Are you ready? What do we call you, sir? First name, Mr. Last name, Glass. Hey, so (laughs) we're back talking about this film we've been we've all been waiting 19 years to see. Yes, I was just on tenterhooks at the end of Unbreakable. Wondering about when the final chapter in the East Trail 177 trilogy would come out. Okay, all that said, 
when I was in the theater watching Split and at the end of the movie, we got that shot of David Dunn, my theater went bat poop crazy. <laughs> uh, people people were definitely, after that movie was over, were really anticipating this yeah. film. Uh, and as much as we might... <laughs> you, were, m- you were watching the film with the dumbest people. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a horrible thing to say. It is, I, I'd have enjoyed, I'd have been part of that, that crowd. I'd like to dedicate this episode to the irate... Dumbest people possible? Uh, that's really bad. <laughs> to the irate listener who like emailed us a couple years ago writing just, Do split, you cowards! <laughs> <laughs> what was it we were supposed to do split with us cowards I, I don't think psycho? it was I think we could do it with psycho we already did psycho though oh, uh, oh we were supposed to do split and something else you cowards yeah yeah gotcha <laughs> Marie Antoinette would have made a really good pairing with that the favorite what are the, what are the connections to the favorite uh, we're all just dancing around yeah, saying really, what we thought ha- about we're having trouble Genevieve, you seemed like you really were into this film. <laughs> I was angry when I was I was angry that I had spent two hours of my my life at this hacky, boring film. Like the my my biggest gripe with this movie, and I have a lot of them, but that it just all adds up to something that felt so inert and boring. I I felt like I watched ninety minutes of Sarah Paulson talking, oh and then thirty minutes of a parking lot fight. <laughs> we should we should specify before we go any further like scott said this was going to be spoiler filled we we really need to lay out we gotta we, not not just you know the inevitable Shyamalan what are the twists but there are things there's so many things in this movie that we can't discuss without inherently giving stuff away so you should really not be listening to this podcast if you're spoiler averse and you haven't seen the movie I mean yet. We're, we're recording this before it actually comes out and it's projected to make like all the money this weekend so presumably anybody who's listening to this has already yeah. seen it and it's our podcast we'll do whatever you, what you <laughs> yeah, want you if, you have see, be... if you haven't seen glasses we're, turn off we're, your stupid we're Shyamalaning this podcast Podcast. We do what we want, you and we don't care don't what the critics think. Don't have to be think. defensive about it. It's yeah. it's, it's polite. Part, yeah, it's part of our it's part of our thing anyway. We do spoilery discussions. We so. do spoilery discussions. It's just that, like sometimes, if I respect the the twist in a movie, I tend to try to dance around it. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's not so much. There's one big twist you must not know. Is like discussing the second half of the movie at all is like there's almost everything interesting about this movie comes out of stuff that you expect to happen and then it goes off in another direction like discussing at least half of this movie (laughs) is inherently a spoiler because it keeps offering you things it's never planning on giving you so just consider yourself warned okay uh tasha i want to hear what you thought because you said after the screening that you liked it more than you were expecting to i was expecting to loathe it okay like (laughs) having having really not liked unbreakable just the the idea of more of it but this time off pay off for the fans like just did not excite me Mm. and i thought split was interesting uh for the most part and then i thought it went into just a really really hacky direction so when you wonder twin powers activate two things i didn't care for all that much (laughs) into something that's meant to be like a, a gigantic payoff for fans of both of them i was expecting to really hate it i was i just felt very detached most of it just kind of played out in a way that seemed to me like well, yes, of course, that is what they would do. Well, yes, uh, that is that is as expected. All right. And I kept waiting to be surprised or intrigued. I kept waiting for something that wasn't just kind of the most plotting, predictable thing imaginable. And in the end, I got that in the form of we're not we're going to claim we're going to do something big and important and we're actually not going to do anything and then the the big twists of the movie are basically screw you if you care about any of this. So and we can we can get into like if nothing else it had me going for for parts of it where I was just like what is the story here? Who are we meant mm-hmm. to care about? What is the direction of this? Like is there anybody in this film that we're actually yep. supposed to care about <laughs> and will that emerge at some point? That was what kept me walking through the movie. And then at the end, the reveals that we get are both so clumsily handled and so dour and sour and sad. I just, I walked out of the movie just feeling like, not like somebody had shot my puppy, but like somebody had shown me a picture of a puppy and said, maybe you might get a puppy later and then put a fist through the puppy picture like for fun. What about drowning in a shallow pool? It was just like, (laughs) the whole film kind of feels like an act of clumsily choreographed nihilism. 
Scott, can you top that? Uh, uh, <laughs> well, I would say that... Wait, here uh, I have it. Glass? More like ass. <laughs> I, I don't have that kind of pith to uh, Pith express. and vinegar. <laughs> Hedwig, is that you? Uh, Hedwig. Oh, my God. Pith well, I, I just, I, I'm very strongly not a fan of the film Split um, and and think that McAvoy is terrible in almost every one of those movies. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Uh, so I don't get it. Like, I can rank, I can do like a ranking of like most to least annoying of the. Of I the mean, main. we all probably know what's number one, but what's number two most uh, annoying? Number one most annoying is Hedwig. Of course. Okay. What's number two most annoying? Uh, Patricia, probably. <laughs> okay. So the ones we see the most of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dennis, after that, maybe. Basically, anybody I don't like we the have beast. to no, deal the with. The Beast is worse than Dennis. Anyway, but he's this. When are you doing your uh, your ranker dot com <laughs> official? There's like a, there's a thing all twenty four personalities ranked. ranked. Well, he only does like five or something, five or six. Though though there's a whole scene where poor Anya Taylor Joy just has to like sit there while he go while he's like dying um, and going through every single one of his stupid God. stupid like, voices. That, that's what I mean. Like the too much gene. It's like <laughs> it's like you thought Split did a whole lot with the personalities. We're going to give them all to you in rapid succession with bright blinding lights in between. Oh my, oh my gosh! Yeah, uh, this this movie does need an epi- epilepsy warning. It, yeah. It's just okay. So, Glass. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is your suggestion, Scott. I'm just going to put that well, out I there. Like, well, I just thought, like, well, first of all, you know, I thought Unbreakable is a substantial film worth talking about, and I still feel that that mm-hmm. is the case, though, though I guess my enthusiasm is <laughs> significantly higher than y'all's. And so I was hopeful for this, because, like, yeah, it's the style, it's the uh, uh, Shyamalan style that I keep coming back to and hoping is going to be good. And there are, there, there are actually select shots and sequences in this movie that where we get a little of the old magic, but not nearly enough. But this film took all of the stuff that I disliked in Unbreakable, the title sequences, <laughs> and then put it right in the dialogue and then had it, had all of that play out. And so we had to get this verbalized deconstruction of the comic book and how comic books work. Specifically limited editions. Yeah, which is which I <laughs> which, which I'm told is completely wrong. No, no every no. people who know anything about comic books are saying that he doesn't he doesn't know what he's talking about. Which that, is that is, which not is not really a term that is used to describe no, a specific type limited of, editions. Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe one off is kind of what they're I, getting I at. I feel like what they were what they were getting at was like crossovers. Some kind of like special crossover story arc. Yeah. Yeah. But but just to have Sarah Paulson have to explain all that stuff and then Mr. Glass, that's all he does is explain and stuff and and then it, it, Bruce Willis is just a total non-presence in this oh. movie. I just don't even know. I I literally don't remember anything that he does in the movie except drown. Get, drown. Yeah. No, he he doesn't want to be there. You know who does want to be there? Spencer Treat Clark. <laughs> Boy, he is happy to be in this movie, I feel. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, enjoy, I enjoyed both that performance and that character. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm not really saying that to, to slag him. Like, in terms of investment, his performance felt the most, like, connected to the movie itself, I guess. Like, uh, James McAvoy, I mean, he seems really happy to be there. That's, he seems, he, he, he is really exercising this. every possible acting yeah. muscle he's got. And I do want to talk about that, because, like, I don't hate it. I don't, I don't hate it the way you okay. seem to, to hate it. So uh, I, split. You don't like... Well, you own Split. Can we, can we say that, that, that Genevieve owns Split now? I had to, I had to buy Come Split. Come over to Genevieve's place. She's got Split. But it's 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 just digital. I don't own a uh, physical copy. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I still can't believe you threw away your, your screener, your awards screener. I've still got they my say, They say to destroy them. So James McAvoy's performance. Like when I was saying in the first half that Shyamalan just always does too much but rarely does it to the point where it's like fun i think the horde character is an example of it being fun like i find it entertaining it's definitely too much and it gets grating over time but i think because mcavoy just seems to be so invested in it and it's just so weird that i kind of like it at heart but i do get very sick of it over the course of this movie i feel like there's too much of it and it's often overwritten but mm-hmm. i'm i'm endlessly impressed by uh james mcavoy changing his physical and verbal language so profoundly that you can tell every single time he's he's changed characters like i find that act of expressive overdone chameleonship to be 
I mean, it, it definitely tastes like uh, reaching for an Oscar with most acting rather than best acting. Yeah. yeah. But I still really enjoy it. I, it's it's difficult to take to some degree because Hedwig is so annoying. Like listening to that lisp, that but like, he dances and and roller skates. And but he's also just he's an annoying personality. You know the personality that shows up to to mock the terrified cheerleaders who are about to die is not a personality you want to spend time with. And yet it's the personality we spend the most time with apart apart from the beast. So I wish there was like a lot less of him, but not necessarily less McAvoy. I, I feel like you're underrating like what he accomplishes here. I don't <laughs> think so. I, I, I just, I don't know. I think all those, all those voices are pretty broad. I don't think there's a lot of, I mean, the, the, the difference, the, I think we can tell the differences between them because they're, because he overdoes every single, he overdoes <laughs> all of them. Um, except maybe Dennis. I don't, maybe because I don't remember what Dennis sounds like, but uh, yeah, I'm not going to try to do my own versions of Hedvig <laughs> and Patricia. But no, no one wants know, that. No one it wants is, that. But, but. It's, it's interesting to me that those characters, though, are so like big and broad and exaggerated and overdone that you can always tell when he goes back to Kevin, who is defined by the absence of all of that and just seems like a person. And it makes Kevin an appealing presence because he's not everything that all of his other personalities are. And given that this movie asks us to believe that Anya Taylor-Joy came out of all of this in love with Kevin somehow. Oh my God, that character. I'm so, I'm so angry because I really like Anya Taylor-Joy. What is that character? And I was pretty fascinated by by her in Split and just her the degree to which she basically trauma is her superpower Mm -hmm. you know having been through a trauma she came out of it with a toolkit that she uses as a survivor she's it's like she's the final girl from a previous previous movie uh who is not phased by the monster this time around you know this is halloween 2 she's already been through halloween 1 she's not as scared as all the people who had like haven't been in a a previous version Mm -hmm. what this movie does with her i'm just i'm baffled by it it's like laurie strode just kind of going you know you know who was really kind to me michael myers like i want to spend more time with him at everybody else's expense i think that's a really bold and interesting choice it's just yet again not one that the film justifies or can possibly make me believe in. I kind of like the structure that we end up with where there are these three characters carried over from other films that are, you know, the heroes and the villains, the big outsized uh, characters, but each one of them has their little shadow character. Uh, Elijah's Mm -hmm. mom, David's son, and Anya Taylor-Joy's character. You know, they each have these peripheral people to whom they mean a lot even if the audience doesn't like these characters, you're still given the understanding that they've had an impact on the world and there are people that love them. Mm-hmm. And the way the movie moves in the direction of these characters are too outsized to be in this world and we're going to end up with you know the leftovers of the people that have their memories, I thought that was an interesting choice. Well, plus you set up, you set up the next movies with... <laughs> well, I mean, you, you do kind of need those characters to be around at the end to like give any sort of satisfactory emotional payoff because you're the three characters you spend the most time with are they're they're closer to the to the stupid building we never get to (laughs) oh the osaka building what that that just feels like such a giant troll like like did did i miss some sort of explanation it was just misdirection on mr glass's part he never actually intended for them to end up at the osaka i don't think he intended that because he he didn't have cameras everywhere there that he had control of okay the whole idea of them when he first laid out the plan like you guys are going to go fight at the top of this building my first thought was the giant crowds aren't going to see you on the top of the building. Well, and there's a whole thing with like, a, and also a chemical company works there. And, and there there's one point during like his overnight machinations where he's like tip tapping away at a computer. And I guess he was, that's when he was setting up the video stream. But I took that to mean maybe on purpose that he was doing something to, I don't know, release chemicals or some sort of evil comic book villain scheme involving the Osaka building. So Maybe that's also misdirection. I think that's deliberate misdirection. I I think you're not meant to know what he's doing there, but it is 
putting the clues out in plain sight so you can have that that you know kind of clean flashback to all of the pieces were in place you just didn't recognize them at the time i think my problem is less that we don't get to the fireworks factory so to speak with the building it's that we end up in a parking lot <laughs> like the to, to go back to you know scott's whole thing with style this is just not a fun film to look at i feel like mm-hmm. y- you know it has a lot of these sort of showy shots a lot of the sort of 180 degree vertical pan thing that we get in in unbreakable and lots and lots of mirror shots you know but and a whole bunch of hero cam where the heroes are uh, the, the cameras are just physically on people's bodies as they're yeah, grappling the fight choreography is really strange that's, with the, the grappling so, feels so Bloomhouse that whole trick but it doesn't I, it doesn't work like it doesn't have any so I don't find it like scary or unsettling or exciting at all to just like have a close-up on Bruce Willis's face while he's getting squeezed really hard <laughs> like it's part of the whole boring <laughs> you know amalgam of that that is this movie um but real quick uh, on the style front i have a question i have a tasha style question <laughs> but it's uh about a stylistic flourish rather than a, a narrative one but uh to go back to the whole mirror shots thing there's one shot it's just a quick scene of sarah paulson like walking to her car through the rearview mirror of a car and I don't think anything else happens in it. Why is that scene there? Why, why are we just showing her walking to her car? Is it just to show it through a mirror? Maybe, maybe I, I missed something. Where, because, where in the film is because, that? Because it's, so, it's, it's, it's a scene that doesn't do anything. Like it, It's the kind of thing that you're, of course, going to forget because nothing happens in it. But it's framed in this really like through a rear view mirror. And it's a kind of tricky shot. And it just feels like so quintessentially like Shyamalan at his worst. Like I'm going to do something flashy and eye grabbing for no reason. Maybe there's a small girl in the car. Yeah. And it's from her point of view. But you don't actually get the reverse shot to reveal that. But it's a secret twist. Wait a Listen, I, I, I'm willing to admit I may have missed something in that while I was rolling my eyes and wasn't, you know, completely focused on the scene. So, yeah, I'm afraid but, I don't have an answer for you because I don't remember that specific shot. I really just wanted to bring it up because it encapsulates like why I get really annoyed with some of his flashier moments as a director. There's a lot about Sarah Paulson's role in this film that I don't understand. <laughs> Scott's in terms just shaking of, his head. No, it doesn't come across in an audio. So there's a lot about her character that only really makes sense in order to have uh, somebody there for exposition. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot about the setup, such as the you only have three days to do this, that only makes sense in terms of putting a completely arbitrary deadline on the movie to ramp up the stakes, I guess. So a lot of what goes on with her character, I guess, isn't well justified and is very clumsy, but sort of makes sense in terms of like we're trying to like speed this along and give it some urgency. What makes no sense to me is that when David Dunn is being murdered, she halts his murder for a moment (laughs) to make it clear to him that once she sat in a restaurant for a really long time waiting for people who weren't part of her secret society to leave. (laughs) Right? (laughs) What she's trying to communicate in that moment, I think is meant to be, I'm sorry that you have to die. We did it for a purpose and we mean well. What comes across instead is you're not going to survive this, but here's some information that's going to make it worse for you. Yeah. Because, you know, this group of controlling people is going to do exactly what you've dedicated your life to stopping. They're going to continue murdering more people and there's nothing you can do about it. Now die. And the fact that this is presented as some sort of like act of of kindness or mercy to me is just yet another indication that i'm i just don't feel like Shaman understands human beings mm-hmm. if it had been written or constructed differently better i think sarah paulson could have brought it across like i don't think she's bad here like she has a certain she like projects vulnerability when you can tell she has a steely center in a way that i think works with this character but the way the dialogue is just... This character is an exposition machine, and I think there's only so much uh, performance can do yeah, to, to fix she, that. I mean, it's unfortunate for her. This is She's kind of playing the role that you expect Samuel L. Jackson to play, because Samuel L. Jackson was the one in right. Unbreakable who was telling you how everything works and the roles everyone has to play and how, what elements of comic books are, are, are what. And uh, a lot of that 
has been shifted over to Sarah Paulson here, and it's just torture. It's so much of it. There's just so much explaining what every little thing is, and I, I don't think it's illuminating at all, and it's it's very false. I mean, it, you know, I mean, it was it was that way in Unbreakable too, when it was just like, okay, this is it. now things are established. You are the hero, and I am the arch villain, and this is and this is how these things work. And and it's very it was strange to see somebody living their lives like like their aesthetic concepts rather than people. But <laughs> um, but this is that times ten. I mean, it's just it's so painful to watch her have to go through all go through all this explanation and and then all the business about the secret society and her standing up at <laughs> restaurants that are apparently just packed with secret society members and, and staffed and by whole... secret society members the, the the bartender is yeah, apparently I, part I, of I the, the society about that. I about and yet that. they let in outsiders and then just sort of like wait for a moment where all the outsiders have finished their dinner and left which is just such a weird mechanic yeah. which would never work like i just i see everybody just like sitting there watching that one couple that won't finish oh, yeah. like eating their damn pizza and then they finally start to yeah. leave and then like a new couple walks in and everybody's just like oh <laughs> We're gonna have to wait another hour and a half for this meeting. Yeah, they're, they're probably looking. The new, the people who aren't in the society, secret society are probably looking around, saying well, these people are not even. <laughs> They're like done with their dinners. <laughs> what are they sitting around for? Why, why does everybody keep watching us and groaning when we order new drinks? <laughs> yeah, just the mechanics of it all. And it's all, it's that, that style without substance thing. It's all in service of that moment where somebody walks out the door and everything goes quiet and somebody's like, you know, we're alone now. It's a cool moment. And it kind of like tries to to feed your personal paranoia that everybody else in the world is in on some secret that you're not in on. It just makes no damn sense <laughs> as as a mechanic, as a way of operating. And it's just it's one of those things that's like this is great as long as you're not thinking about it at all. Uh, well, <laughs> well, we're going to think gonna, about we're, it some we're more. We're going to think about it a little bit more <laughs> and and, uh, and you know really ponder the uh, East Rail one seventy seven trilogy. After the break, we'll talk more about Unbreakable and Glass. I've developed an effective treatment for this disorder. <coughs> the light will force a different identity to take over. Por favor, senora. I want my headphones back. Step away from the controls now, little doctor. Can't beat the beast! Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together. Yeah, let's say split. We bring the three films together. <laughs> now we'll talk about these two and, uh, and talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, one idea is the notion of free will versus determination because in Unbreakable, it's all about characters who have to come to terms with the roles that they are fated to play. Uh, glasses may be some different ideas about that. I think that Glass opens up the possibility of change. You know, and maybe this is something that Split kind of brought on as well in The, the Beast and in this idea of transformation. There is this opening for roles to change and for people to do perhaps different things in this one. It's not as, it doesn't seem like you're just putting the pieces into place in uh, glass as much as you are in Unbreakable. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Am I wrong about that? No. I think an interesting idea that Glass kind of brings to the fore is with that Sarah Paulson character and the endless exposition of her picking apart all the reasons they they might not be superheroes and like finding ways to inject doubt in, into their, their identities. Um, I think with the David Dunn character, and this is you know, maybe projecting a little bit because I don't know the person was like, does a whole lot to earn this interpretation with that performance. But I think like you do see maybe a slight bit of temptation on his part of in the idea that he may not be fated to do this. This may not be something that the universe has determined for him and that he is in fact chosen for himself and he could by extension choose not to do. That feels like a direct link to Unbreakable, which is so much about David allowing himself to be convinced and convincing himself that this is the person he is and this is what he is fated to do. So I think Glass sort of faints at the idea of reversing that in an interesting way. 
But then, as Tasha put it, it just comes to this nihilistic ending where it ultimately doesn't yeah, mean anything. Yeah. yeah. N- none of it matters. It's interesting to me that both of these movies are so rooted in self-doubt. I mean, the whole plot in Unbreakable is kicked off by Elijah doubting whether he has a purpose, whether he's a mistake. And, you know, his payoff in the end is saying, like, you exist, therefore I'm not a mistake. Like, his doubts have been resolved. David's doubts are resolved when he he goes and performs an act of arguable, but also still very nihilistic heroism, given that, you know, two of the people he goes to save are dead and he has to murder somebody to save them. It's all very dark and depressing and minimal. But still, they both engage in in decisive acts of of trying to act on what they believe they are. And that's kind of how the the film resolves is like we've we've both taken steps. The fact that Glass revolves so much around injecting doubt back into the narrative is part of what makes it so inert for me, because it opens with, you know, the Horde is also questioning himself. You know, the beast has come out and it didn't change the world. It it wasn't this gigantic revelation for everyone. Maybe the beast isn't as powerful as the Horde thought. So there's also that question of doubt. But He's acting on it. He's kidnapped these girls. And there's a like a, a confrontation with stakes. Are we going to find the girls in time? Mm-hmm. Once we do, we have to fight the horde. You know, this is a, a very conventional kind of superhero face-off. And in the process, we see that the horde has powers. And we see that David has powers. And we see that he's acting as a superhero. Yeah. And then to have the middle act be about, mm-hmm. well, maybe none of that is actually true. Right. Maybe none of the stuff that the audience just saw and experienced and enjoyed is true or real. That's not a question that you can engage with as an audience member. Yeah. It's just like a good 45 minutes of, yeah, remember that stuff that you maybe liked? What if you didn't actually watch any of that? I, I think if we hadn't gotten the beast crawling on the ceiling, you could maybe, maybe, maybe get away with teasing out the idea that these are just two really strong guys and that can bench pass 450 pounds or whatever, you, you know, but the fact that we see like actual superhuman behavior at that point, just totally, like you say, negates the exercise of, of entertaining this notion um, and makes it really, really frustrating. But to go back to the idea of uh, free will versus determination, it's interesting to me that of this like trifecta, you have one person, uh, David Dunn slash the overseer that you would slot as a hero, and then two that you would probably slot more as villains. But you know, as the movies, or at least the Sarah Paulson character kind of takes pains to point out like, you're neither, you're both, It's, it's all what you do. But anyway, both of those villainous characters the horde and mr glass have traumatic childhoods it comes down to something bad happened to them or they had a very bad condition put on them in childhood and that is a direct link to who they are now like there's even there's even a line i I think spencer treat clark's character says something about like it's all about the parents you know it all Mm -hmm. comes to it all comes back to the parents so it feels like the implication is that like if you have a bad childhood or well, I guess Mr. Glass's mom is actually a very good mom, but he, he does have this very like traumatic circumstance that he is in um, and all the, you know, very painful injuries that have come from it. David Dunn, to my recollection, doesn't have anything like that in his past that he has the car crash but i'm not i'm not entirely convinced he has a past yeah. apart from a kind of the hiccup of he was a high school football star and then he quit yeah so i don't know there seems to be like some wonky thinking here in terms of like trauma turns you into a villain i guess i don't think it's trauma turns you into a villain i think it's trauma makes you a more relatable villain which is mm. something we've seen a lot of in in narratives in the over the past couple of decades because i think that there's a there's a progressive idea that somebody who does bad acts like you have to look back into why they did them you can't prevent the next generation of killers without considering what makes somebody a killer you can't present prevent the next generation of any other kind of criminals without considering the environment that people are being raised in that forces them into a criminal life and the causes are important i don't think that looking at a given criminal and saying this person had a really traumatic background is saying anybody with a really traumatic background will become a criminal, but it's a way of understanding them. And here, ultimately, I feel like it's not 
saying that they're they're in a deterministic state where they were inevitably going to become villains. It's positing them both as people who need to be rescued. Hmm. And I feel like Anya Taylor-Joy's character does keep trying to rescue Kevin. And in the end, there's there's just the slightest sense that he's relieved to be being let out of this yeah. existence. Mr. Glass is still fighting his demons. And in the end, he feels like he's accomplished something. So like both of them are trying to overcome this hideous background and their present selves in order to have some form of catharsis at the end. And I would argue that they both get it. It's just such a sad and meaningless catharsis given Mm -hmm. everything that's come before it. But it's interesting that he does break them out a little bit in that respect um so oh someone was saying that they thought the three characters were perhaps supposed to be uh id ego and super yeah ego. i saw i saw that Ooh. too and it would make a little more sense if the horde wasn't already all of those things and then a whole bunch more yeah it depends what about patricia where does patricia fall <laughs> i want to i want to loop back a little bit to sarah paulson in terms of free will i guess i am baffled by the sequence where she brings the three of them together to interact with each other. Right. Because that is a therapeutic method that has been used in some very interesting cases. It brought up for me uh, The Three Christs of Ypsilanti and the movie that was made out of it relatively recently, where there were three psychiatric patients who were all convinced they were Jesus Christ, and a psychiatrist brought them together and had them interact because they kind of counteracted each other's delusions. I feel like Maybe that's what they're what Shyamalan is trying to do with those sequences. But once again, it's an idea that doesn't develop. It's like putting them together in the same space might let them feed either each other's confidence or each other's doubt. But instead, we just kind of get this like weird sort of circular banter. Well, yeah, because you've set up those characters in a way that they can't interact in any useful way. Like, like Mr. Glass is presented to us at that point in the film as catatonic. He's not talking. <laughs> Dave, David Dunn's not a talker. But, yeah. he, you know, and Kevin slash the Horde is oh, how how do you inter- interact or how do you have a conversation with that? So the Sarah Paulson character is put in the position of, t- of like drawing out what you're talking about, but just through her without any actual interaction between those characters that would show us. So it just ends up being this very clumsy, remember what I said to you earlier when we were alone? I'm going to say it to you again now that we're here. And it just feels repetitive. Like, I feel like she's trying to offer them a free will choice to doubt themselves constructively and walk away from this whole situation. And instead, it ends up being this like weirdly deterministic, we're only here because the narrative thought it would be interesting to watch these characters interact kind of thing. Yeah, and it also seemed like it was a, a, just a staging conceit in search of a reason to exist narratively, too. I'm just like, I think you want to see these three... Yeah. Uh, big characters from these movies share a space together, and that's gonna that's gonna bring a special kind of energy. And uh, I don't I don't think he really thought through how how that was gonna work. One of the things that is most lacking for me in this film, in terms of energy, is any sense of Bruce Willis's character making any kind of choice, making any kind of change, being any kind of dynamic character. Yeah, part of it is just the complete deadness of Bruce Willis's performances these days. I don't know what interests that man but it just doesn't seem like being in films is <laughs> is one of them and money apparently i guess he made a ton of money per day on this like most of the budget or something um because the budget is only 20 million but i think i think he was collecting a pretty heavy part of that money but but, but i don't think there's his performance is virtually non-existent i can't remember anything he does in this thing except die yeah well, here let's 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 make Bruce Willis a connection. Actually, okay. uh, I'm going to do it on the fly because how do you feel this compares to? Because because I, I mean, like he's still operating at a pretty low register in Unbreakable. But you need him to be. But but when you're seeing when he's on screen for that long, and the film itself is paced the way it is then then that performance feels right for what the movie's doing mm-hmm. you know and to this, me it still feels really dead i feel like the even, even unbreakable 
in Unbreakable, I feel like there's that one sequence where his son pulls a gun on him to try to prove, yeah. like, yeah. prove that he's a hero. That is an intense sequence because you can feel what's going on in at least two of those characters. Robin Wright, we're, we may talk about women in these films because Robin Wright is such a non-entity and unbreakable despite being this kind of hanger on throughout a lot of it. But in that one scene, they each have a motive and it's a very intensified one. And it seems like the about the only time during the film Bruce Willis like really wakes up and is fully present and brings his like charisma and force of personality to the fore. And it's all to try to shout down this kid who is in, in terrible danger of possibly murdering somebody, mm. you know, and that one sequence just kind of shows that like he's still there. But the rest of the film, I don't ever feel that kind of energy from him and certainly not in Glass. I think generally, though, if you think about these two films in comparison, you just there are mo- scenes and moments in, in Unbreakable that just are so crystal in your mind. I, I saw Glass the most most recently. I, I saw them all, all three in a row, and I and I remember it by far the least. I, I, my recall of Glass is very, really poor poor because it doesn't have that same sense of purpose it's just it's just kind of a throwing all of these characters together putting a lot of uh comic book talk on top of it you know staging this absurd climax in a parking lot with like a tank like a tank a of water, water. Tank, yeah. why why is the tank of water there because it powered the water jets in david's room to keep him from escaping oh. which it was a kind of an early give giveaway that sarah paulson was yeah. completely disingenuous about everything she claimed to believe oh, the water jets because there's no reason to have a like a super villain death trap to keep him in place yeah. if she doesn't actually believe he has superpowers like she says you know these are here because your delusion says mm-hmm. that you're you can't blah blah water blah blah but if he didn't have superpowers they didn't need that there no, and that's, right. that's a tip off that everything she's saying is a lie so let's talk about the best part of any M. Night Shyamalan <laughs> movie, and that's the women. So uh, the, women, the women Unbreakable to on this and podcast. Glass uh, hit me. So so Robin Wright Penn still at this point? I think she was just Robin Wright at this point. Really? But Oh, you know, I say that. I don't think I checked the credits. I think I was just looking at the uh, IMDb. Yeah. Let's just call it. I mean, she's not any. Let's just say Robin Wright. It's, uh, IMDb says as Robin Wright Penn. Oh, so, oh there Robin you go. Penn. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's why she was so morose. Oh, she was not great. No, oh, I know. She, and she's once again in just that that thankless task of like her only role in this film is just kind of be a wet blanket. Yeah, uh, being needy at him, being sad at him, being the reason that he gave up football, and now <laughs> like the reason that he feels unfulfilled in life. And then, it, but then at the end of the movie, like that moment that you called out, where he shares that moment with his son. To me, that moment is, I trust this, I don't know, eight-year-old kid with my secret, mm. but I definitely don't trust my wife with it. Yeah. And it just becomes this yet another thing that he's cutting her out of. I, once again, <laughs> just don't believe in their relationship at all. But he looks so sad in, in glass when he's looking at the back of someone who clearly isn't her at the stove. Yeah, and then they, they pull the, uh, oh, you're, uh, we sent your wife to a secret island where she'd be safe. Uh, and by that, I mean she died in between movies. Like yeah. that, well, that at she level. Has, of... At least she's smart enough to just to not have the character there at all. Because I think <laughs> Robin would... Wright. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure he tried to get her back. This, all right, real quick. <laughs> Let's talk about the Shyamalan cameo in oh, in both right. of oh, these films, God. and especially how it's handled in Glass, where it is not only oh. the same character, but it's the same character who comments on himself in... Oh. That was a, another time in my life when I was, uh, uh, what, being a bad guy I, or yeah. something, running drugs in the stadium? Or? I, was, I was running with a bad crowd, then, let me tell you. Yeah. So... My point being, I'm sure he tried to get Robin Wright involved in this, but she's like, no, I got Netflix money. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> or possibly, you're going to write, write a better role for yeah, me? Yeah, exactly. You're going to let me be involved? Yeah, I mean, this is in no way unique to Shyamalan's movies, but he is a particularly egregious perpetrator of the female character who only exists in relation to a man's pain. And oh, these that's... two movies, like two a one. 
every single female character is that and in split too with the psychiatrist character as well you know like the women are there to either be wet blankets to somehow prop up the the male characters to be victims to be victims yeah and it's just it's so obnoxious like i i don't know maybe there's a a better character somewhere in his filmography i have not seen all his movies village but yeah they're not in any of this trilogy that one that was that was the thing that kind of made split and then the bit here with the cheerleaders a little bit it's all that stuff is just way too skeevy for me all the all of like the obsession with scantily dressed teenagers it's being abducted and tied up and there's something just a little moment i hated was during the escape when david's helping the cheerleaders escape and and the beast is there he throws a table and just like wangs one of the the cheerleaders against the wall like really really brutally and it's like it, it got a laugh in our theater and that just like made me sad and I, I i can't say for certain it was intended to generate a laugh but it kind of feels like it might have been i don't know that it was especially because she got up afterwards you never know with him yeah yeah I, I i don't feel like it was intended i feel like it that was a reaction to it being both startling and kind of ridiculous and even more ridiculous when she gets up but yeah but it's... sarah paulson she's in charge of this this you know proactive uh Secret society that well. yeah, she's she's not in charge. She's an employee of them. I mean, yeah. she's yeah, I like in the scenes where we see her talking to them. She's giving. Them it's like she's begging him for funding. Uh, like she's begging him for permission. She's yeah. like laying out her plans, and she's also just in a both ineffectual at her job and as I say that just that whole business with wait stop murdering him. I just want to let him know that we're going to yeah. murder other people too. And that we don't think we're bad for doing it because it's worked this way. That her line about we don't consider ourselves evil is really interesting because it plays like she's revealing something. But what she's revealing is that, again, she's disingenuous and that you know, people that murder people are still bad people. Oh, well, oh, I'm not Shyamalan. Yep, you've disappointed us this time. Uh, <laughs> I liked I'm, the visit. I thought the visit was kind of going to be a, a combat. Did you? I liked it pretty, pretty okay. It didn't. It wasn't any it's fine for what out of is. the ballpark thing. But compared to something like Lady in the Water, which if I had the power to push a button and burn every copy and every memory of that film, I probably would. Well, but the thing, well, that's Christopher Doyle photograph. That's very pretty. But there's a thing where I, with him though, the visit bothered me because it, it isn't him it's not his style. Mm. And so, so it's like the one thing about his films that I, that I tend to connect to is gone. And so now what? Um, but, um, but it's effective for what it is. Keith hates it. He's not here to really slag the visit, but, um, for the record, I don't think Keith would have been the dissenting voice. And, uh, uh, when it comes to our opinions of glass, he was sitting and next and to me was curious. screening and was not, not having a good time, but it's good to see him out there. Um, so <laughs> getting, going out there, seeing movies. It's always he gave fun. It, he gave it two stars oh, over in Letterboxd. Movies are great. So Unbreakable is available on DVD and Blu-ray and can be digitally rented on all the usual platforms. You can only buy (laughs) Split currently or watch it at Genevieve's house. Glass is in theaters now. Uh, We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, you know, it's been a while since we've done one of these, and in that time, uh, it was the end of the year, and we did all of our end-of-year lists and catch up movie watching and I, I watched a lot of a lot of movies between then and now but I wanted to pick something that was still in theaters and that I really think people should go see in the theater while they still can mm-hmm. which is if Beale Street could talk Barry Jenkins's follow-up to Moonlight um, I suspect that most of our listeners are familiar with this movie if they haven't seen it already it's it's been out for several weeks now but if you haven't you know there are a lot of movies out there I would I would strongly urge you to get out 
and see if Beale Street could talk. It's a, a really beautiful film uh, based on a uh, James Baldwin novel uh, set in 1970s Harlem. And uh, just sort of broad strokes plot outline, uh, Kiki Lane stars as, uh, she's a Chicago-based actress, by the way. Oh. Uh, Kiki Lane uh, stars as Trish, a young black woman who is trying to clear the name of her lover and the father of her child, Fani, played by Stephen James, with the help of her mother, played by Regina King, who has rightly been getting a lot of awards attention for uh, her performance here. So that's sort of the broad plot, but Jenkins presents the story non-linearly, jumping between these very highly romantic segments showing sort of the early arc of Trish and Fani's relationship and the events leading up to and following Fani being falsely accused of rape, uh, which are heartbreaking. So sort of because of that jumping around in the timeline, the performances have to be really sharp in terms of sort of keeping the character's emotional journey consistent and coherent as the story skips around. And I think all three of the actors I named acquit themselves really well in that respect. But I brought it up because I really want to talk about the filmmaking on the way to urging listeners to see this in the theater while it's still there. I'm pretty sure we talked about this when we did Moonlight on the podcast, but Jenkins is just so good at making these small and intimate moments seem larger than life Mm -hmm. uh, through the way he shoots them, but also his use of sound and music and all sorts of stuff. And this movie has, it has some big moments. There's actually an amazing scene involving the families of the two main characters coming together that is like such an amazing exercise and like tension and release and is not what I would call intimate but is definitely a smaller moment. It's a family moment, but it just feels larger than life. And that's what a lot of this movie is to me. It's like small interpersonal relationships just rendered highly romantic. It's a very sad movie in a lot of ways, but it's also, like I say, highly romantic and uh, really worth checking out. Uh, Definitely one of my favorite films of last year, I think, you are both uh, fans as well. I was. It, it made my uh, top ten of the year list, yeah. and I talked yeah. about it a bunch on Film right. Spotting's end of year episodes. But uh, just to kind of pile on that, there is a a degree. I was also just talking uh, at, at length about this film with a friend of mine, uh, Wesley James from the Odd Splice podcast, which is also about film. They're about to do this film, in fact, for one of their upcoming podcasts. And one of the things that we kept circling back to was that we're just we're not used to seeing uh, sex scenes that mm. are are completely balanced between it's there's it's not about the female gaze it's not about the male gaze yeah. it's just about a humanistic gaze there's a sex scene in this movie that is one of the most like i want to almost say casually erotic things yeah. i've seen in film it's all about like black skin being beautiful and it's not about who you're looking at necessarily it's about intimacy mm-hmm. in a way that's and vulnerability amazing. and vulnerability and, and, and in that respect it reminded me a lot of the beach scene and moon and moonlight as a sort of a another example of a sex scene that operates on that level exactly and moonlight just the the sense of like of intimacy and longing and erotic need that kind of runs through that movie is concentrated in places in beale street and then in scenes Outside the sex scene, you still get that same kind of of vulnerability and need, but also in places, uh, a kind of like burgeoning confidence, Mm -hmm. because there are so many different places in the movie where somebody needs to just kind of forcefully stand up for themselves. And it's satisfying, but there's just so much tension and emotional ache to it at the same time. It's a really beautiful film, but I've also just got to give a shout out to the soundtrack, which mm-hmm. is, oh my God, the soundtrack for that movie is so rich and lush and there's so much going on in it. It's a really good film. Yeah, photography too. I, well, I I won't add much to that, to that except, um, I mean, it wasn't my top five. I really loved okay. it. And I, and I think it's every bit as good as, as Moonlight. I think it's, I think I really hope more people get a chance to see it um, because it just feels like it's been caught up in the whole Annapurna Pictures mess at the end of the year and Mm -hmm. it just hasn't been gotten the kind of attention that I think it deserves. But what really bowled me over at the end of the movie, and this is entirely due to Jenkins's heightened, you know, Wong Kar Wai esque Mm -hmm. style is, is the fact is the revelation that, that what, what really happens to this, to this couple is, absolutely ordinary like yeah. it's like like the, the way the system ends up working for them is so 
familiar and just like just to realize that he's that it is that familiar and that and that Jenkins has taken this this story and elevated it to the way that he has and given it all the emotion and life that he has it really got to me so I love this movie and certainly would recommend people check it out he's got a Wong Kar Wai sense of color too I mean in this film in particular like Moonlight was so spare in so many ways like intense sharp visuals but just so often operating in like a relatively small uh, selected color set. Beale Street is just about all of the colors. Yeah. Well, I wanted to bring it up so that people would see it in theaters, but I also wanted to bring it up because I knew you both liked it and I wanted us to talk a little bit about it on the podcast. So mission accomplished. You did it. Scott, what about you? What's okay, so so well, this, this week I've been extremely steeped in the films of Chris Smith. Uh, um, I, I had a couple of... Uh, features run on the 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 ringer uh, one was an unexpected piece of news about uh, the fire festival documentary that he made and it's it's conflict with the fire festival documentary that hulu made um and the other was just was more just a a, a straight up profile of him and his work um he did american movie um he's done a lot of uh, films that i really uh, like uh, Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond is another one. He, his first film, American Job, is re- is really outstanding. Uh, uh, the Pool. He's just got a lot of really good movies. And, the, and one I wanted to recommend now um, again is a movie he did in two thousand nine called Collapse. Did, it, did it, any of you all see this movie? I don't think so. Collapse. Um, this is a very much in the style wise would remind you a little bit of of the uh, of films like The Fog of War. By Errol Morris, uh, it is about this former LAPD officer turned independent reporter named Michael Ruppert, and he is the sole subject. And he is ranting about this issue of peak oil, which is that his his idea is that the entire global economy is going to collapse once we reach this point where. Uh, oil pr- production reaches its apex and then fossil fuels decline and all of the industrial and economic infrastructure around it will just completely collapse along with it. And so in, in the way he says it is just utterly compelling. But the documentary is so clever because it, it is, um, on the one hand, it feels like one of those kind of doom-laden documentaries that you always see. I mean, you know, there's so many documentaries out there where you're like, that make you think about how the apocalypse is going to happen, whether it's going to come with food shortages or water shortages or or climate change or whatever, or debt. But this kind of takes the approach of like this is could this is just as much about his personal collapse into paranoia and conspiracy theory as it is about his theory about how the how the world is going to end. And so so that is an interesting tension between those two things. It's brilliantly edited it's really mesmerizing to to watch and uh it was a film that i really loved and rated highly at the time i gave it an a and just i never thought it got the kind of attention that it deserved and i think it's kind of interesting now 10 years later when none of this guy's predictions have really borne out i think it really enriches the film rather than takes it away from it um and it kind of gets you i think that mindset that he has is is infected us even more um, even as what he believes in, uh, as even as this thing he believed was going to happen really hasn't happened. So it's called Collapse. It's available. You can pick it up to rent and on any streaming service. So yeah. Interesting. Collapse. So what about you, Tasha? I mentioned the Odds Place podcast a minute ago, which I'm very biased because these are people I know, but uh, I'm having a, a lot of fun with it. Their concept isn't hugely dissimilar from ours. They find a theme and then two of the hosts, uh, Josh and Caleb, each bring in one film that they think fits that theme. And they debate the how the films compare and contrast, how they fit together. And then Wes is the arbiter who's supposed to pick one of them in mm-hmm. the end. And uh, most recently, they <laughs> the theme was peens on screen. And mm-hmm. they did The Hunt and Eastern Promises. <laughs> and talked about both of the, how both of those films handle things like masculinity and gay characters and conflict and taboo and just the idea of, of masculinity and, and male genitals i think it's a lot of fun uh the most recent one they disagree a lot and they fight and and it reminded us it reminded me of us scott that's <laughs> so beautiful yeah um but that's just a personal little recommendation uh for a larger cinematic thing 
so Karen Kusama's Destroyer is currently in theaters. And that's a film that has gotten kind of middling reviews. I can see the flaws in it, but I enjoyed it a lot because it is in some ways a conventional Raymond Chandler-esque like film noir, hard-bitten detective movie with Nicole Kidman in the lead role as a, a unlikable, damaged detective who is very clearly a male type, a male cliche, a male trope who has not been radically rewritten because it's a woman playing it. And it just plays into Kasama's films, uh, including Eon Flux, which was, <laughs> it's kind of well known that Paramount like took that away from her during a regime change mm-hmm. and butchered it. Uh, and that she's very unhappy with how it came out. And Jennifer's Body, which was overlooked in its time and has become a cult film, like her films so often reach for some kind of intelligent uh, commentary about women's roles, how they work in society and how people feel about them. And I feel like Destroyer is doing some really interesting things in terms of having a lead character who is not likable and in some ways is not justified in her behavior but is distinctive and memorable and interesting and exciting to watch there's a lot of buzz around nicole kidman potentially as an oscar contender some of which may come from the fact that she she grubs herself way down Mm -hmm. for this uh, performance (laughs) but some of it is just it's such a hard charging role and there's some physical conflict in this movie that's pretty brutal uh in a in a good way i mean it's just it's it's intense and shocking and there's a lot of emotional conflict that's really well handled i think it's a really interesting film but for people who are interested in kasama in general i also recently watched for the first time her movie the invitation which is on netflix currently and is a little kind of chamber horror film about a couple who comes to a dinner party at the home of a friend, the, the ex of one of the members of the couple uh, and who they haven't seen in a very long time. And it's a reunion of a bunch of friends who haven't seen each other in a very long time. And slowly and surely the evening tips off the rails. It reminds me a little bit of the host. Uh, It reminds me uh, just a good deal of like Blumhouse movies in general. It's got that smallness to it. It definitely feels like a play because it's mostly single set. And there's that sensation of just like a hot box of things getting worse and worse and people getting more and more uncomfortable. It's very taut and eventually it's uh, very bloody. But <laughs> the process of getting there, I think, is is really interesting. Scott, you're nodding for a lot of this. I, I, enjoy, I, I, I do enjoy it. It's, just, it's uh, as you say, it's a chamber piece. It's full of um, you know escalating tension and surprise, and uh, I, I f- remember thinking the ending was not very satisfying, but I did think it was kind of gripping getting there, and it was very very nicely made and kind of restored some confidence, I guess, uh, that I that it was had been lost a little bit from some of her previous work. I wasn't obviously a in flux is a in flux, but I think I, at the time I was not really into Jennifer's body either, so uh, this felt like she was just you know just a very solid exciting fun film i'll say that the ending is one of my favorite parts of that movie not to give anything away but it's there are certain things you expect uh the end of a movie like that to do that it doesn't do there are certain really obvious beats that it ends up not hitting in favor of doing something that surprised me a little Uh, and i find it I, I found it really gratifying, but your mileage certainly may no, vary. Right. Hey, it's on Netflix. Right? Yeah, you just it's on Netflix. So ca- see it all cash. Entry level is really low. Genevieve, it's your favorite thing. <laughs> a super, super tense movie where you're constantly worried about awkwardness. And then there's a whole bunch of violence. Yeah, I'll put it on my list. <laughs> <laughs> so Karen Kusama's Destroyer and The Invitation and The Odds Place podcast. That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pair will come out January 29th, February 6th. Genevieve, what's coming up next? Almost exactly 20 years ago, Chris Smith's American movie was the talk of the Sundance Film Festival, winning the Grand Jury Prize for Best Documentary and an unusually lucrative distribution deal for nonfiction. When Smith was putting the finishing touches on his first film, American Job, in an editing bay at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, he met Mark Borchardt, a fellow filmmaker and big personality who dreamed of getting a personal opus called Northwestern off the ground. 
American Movie is about Borchardt clinging to that dream as he grinds through low-wage jobs, mounting debt, and an unfinished horror short called Coven. Now Smith is back with the Netflix documentary Fire, another film about a visionary who overpromises and underdelivers. The visionary this time is Billy McFarland, a brash young entrepreneur whose Fire Festival was pitched as a luxury music festival, where attendees could frolic on the beach with supermodels and influencers. But it turned out to be a fraudulent debacle that played out on social media. On our next pair of episodes, we'll compare and contrast Borchardt and McFarland, and consider how Smith has continued to work in a changing independent landscape. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of M. Night Shyamalan movies and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve. I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha? I am the film and TV editor at TheVerge.com. You can find my work there, and you can hear me on a bunch of past and present uh, film spotting podcasts. I think uh, the live show that we recorded in Chicago last week is going to be up as a podcast soon. You can hear me talking yet even still more about the end of the world and making fun of Michael Phillips, Chicago Tribune oh, so critic. Much. I'm glad you're doing that. And, and, and you can hear me in the audience going, yay, Tasha. And you can hear neither of us saying anything about the gigantic spider that was crawling all over over the stage during the show. True, Although true we, facts. Did, we did turn and lock eyes at one point when that spider was uh, was upstaging everybody because I know how Genevieve feels about spiders. Gosh, Scott, spider. where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. Um, I had a really great week this week professionally. I'll just say it. I mean, like both of these both of these pieces that ran in the ringer are two things I've been, I don't know if I've been as proud of a a couple of pieces of is, is those two, so you find me there writing about Chris Smith and writing about the writing about the conflict between the two uh, fire festival documentaries, and uh, you can also find me in the New York Times, uh, Washington Post, NPR. And I'm also the editor-in-chief of the Oscilloscope Musings blog. Yeah, you can also find a gigantic uh, interview I did with Karen Kusama at TheVerge.com. And you can find uh, our, our other host, Keith Phipps, on Twitter at, at kphips3000 and you can find his work at places like the ringer and polygon and the verge and vulture and other fine publications so uh we're looking forward to having him back we love you keith uh you can stay updated on the next picture show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via twitter at nextpicturepod and via facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and if you haven't subscribed to the show on apple podcasts already please consider it Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. It's very hard to give that introduction without tipping the fact that this film is a piece of shit. Okay. <laughs>